Hello and welcome to the PhD Life Raft podcast. I'm Emma Brzezinski and today I am talking to the wonderful Selena Busby and we're talking about dyslexia and the PhD. We talk about the challenges and the opportunities of being a neurodiverse academic and we also talk about teaching James Corden. So I do hope you enjoy this episode. Selena. Hello, Emma. <laughs> I was just saying, I was just saying, I was been a bit giddy um, having a um, meeting up with you because we know each other from a long, long, long time. We're trying to work out how many years. It's just many years. It's mid 90s, go back to. <laughs> a very long time. Taught at Amersham and Wickham College. And did you actually, did you teach James Corden when he was there as well? No, I think no. I started just after James Corden left. Ah, so, yes. So, me, Selena, James Corden, all at Amsterdam Wickham College. Together. And Zoe Ball. And Zoe Ball just before us, too. Did you? Yeah. Oh, see, I didn't see Zoe Ball, but I did um, have the pleasure of teaching James Corden. <laughs> oh, bless him. Um, anyway... So it is truly lovely and I really, really appreciate you taking the time. You are a super, super busy and awesome person. And um, I, I really am very grateful that you've come, said yes to come and talk today. It's a um, joy to come and talk to you. Bless you. And as I say, it's also made me a bit giddy, so I need to just kind of get get down, get a bit more. I mean, I'm pretending that I'm professional some of the time, which isn't actually true. Um, so we, we're going to get into talking um, about dyslexia in a minute but I always start with asking people about their PhD journey their experience of the PhD um and beyond indeed so can you tell us a little bit about your story please oh my goodness the PhD story uh yes I did my PhD part-time uh I think that's still quite unusual I was working full-time at Central School of Speech and Drama for most of the time I was a part-time PhD student um, and that made some of the journey really pragmatic because although I'm an applied theatre practitioner and researcher that means bringing lots of groups together and it would have made sense to have done a practices PhD research experience where I was working with groups of people but I knew that I couldn't do that with my full-time job so it became a very pragmatic exercise in thinking what type of research could I do alongside a quite a heavy teaching load. And so um, I studied a very traditional theatre, really, main, main stage theatre productions between 1997 and 2003 and looked at representations of families in what I guess is often called um, in-your-face theatre. But that has actually been quite useful because I've sort of got two strings to my bow, which in actual fact was a thing that Emma, you suggested to me a very long time ago to, to make myself really clever. Thank you, you were brilliant. You said it's best not to pigeonhole all your work and research in one area because you'll be more employable. So I kind of have a theatre history side and the applied side. So I'm very grateful to you for that. You're so welcome. <laughs> um I guess that's the kind of background to it. 
uh, I, I guess my journey was quite long, longer than most people, which was a joy in some ways and a frustration in others because of the part-time nature of it. And actually because of the dyslexia, I only re- I only discovered or was diagnosed. I'm not really sure that's the right. I'm not comfortable with that terminology, really. But I only discovered that, that some of the quirkiness about my thinking and writing was as a result of having dyslexia just before I started the PhD process. Mm-hmm. So it, it, the process probably took longer because I was learning the best ways for me to do things which might not necessarily be the same way that everybody does them. Um, so it was quite a long journey. Um, and at some, at some points, like everybody else, intensely uh, frustrating um, and in other other times an absolute joy I think my journey was a, a real joy where I was doing the research and the thinking and the making the connections and the reading um, it was definitely less of a joy when I started the writing process properly mm. Mm. I love that you said joy a lot of times <laughs> we don't you know we don't hear that enough around PhD discussions and there is joy in there. There is to joy. To be found. Yeah. <laughs> to yeah. be found. Um, and I, I, I think also your your passion about your subject and what you do just shines through in, in all of your work. Um, and I, I kind of, that that's something that characterises um, you to me. Um, oh, thank you. You're so welcome. You're so welcome. It's so lovely to have you here. I'm so excited. Um, so... So we so we're going to talk about uh, dyslexia and just just before we came on, I was I was kind of saying, well, how how can we frame this up? Because it's it, it's it's and you were saying about it being really a, it you know the possibility as well as the as well as the challenge of it. In fact, can, I said I was going to ask you to say that again. So, Selena, how can we frame this up? Um, <laughs> in terms of discussing dyslexia and how do we frame it? Because it's doing a PhD with dyslexia or how would we how would we frame that um I I uh I guess I guess that's it I I more and more um I think of it as being um that I'm neurodiverse or I have Mm -hmm. a a neurodiversity Mm -hmm. and that's important I think because and and when I'm working with students I definitely say hands up I, I am dyslexic and that is going to affect the way I teach and the, and the way I, I work. And I, I do that very strategically now, which I mm. wouldn't necessarily have done in the past. But the neurodiverse label is really is really useful because if you it's that labeling thing. If you label somebody as being dyslexic, a dyslexic student, a dyslexic researcher, that comes with a lot of baggage. And we tend to see it as an as a negative thing or a thing to be worked through that's 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 a challenge I think one of the really um, useful do, things to do is think about it as a neurodiversity because it, it just means that I think differently and I mm, work mm. differently and there are definitely aspects of being dyslexic that um, make me a stronger researcher and are an advantage and then there are things that are more challenging that I have to work around or find my own ways to work and the two balance each other out in different ways in different parts of my work I guess um one of the one of the things the, the way that my dyslexia works and dyslexia is a very broad label so everybody yes, is yes. is so different mm. but for me I'm what I've what I've learned is that part of my creativity comes as a result of the the dyslexia and that's rooted in the fact that I I'm very good 
at seeing connections between things that aren't necessarily apparent. I kind of see the big picture in a really complex, beautiful, dynamic mm-hmm. way. And I will link things and I will link people's reaction to things in ways that non-neurodiverse people don't do because they think in a more logical structured way Mm. so Mm. one of the really beautiful things about it is I can make unusual connections and really follow those through in interesting ways but my particular challenge is then structuring it in a way that other people can access it and understand it Um, and that would be the 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 challenge that I have to or have started to or definitely started to that I that I work with if that makes Mm. sense it makes absolute sense and I think this sense of the beauty of actually seeing the world differently and being able, like you say, that creative approach to things, which is such a gift, um, but also a challenge at the same time <laughs> in terms of trying to get it down onto paper then, which which yeah. fundamentally is, is the challenge of that, that writing up process of the PhD. Yeah. Um, so can you tell us a little bit more then about what that looked like on the on the PhD journey for you? Um, yeah, I, it's really, it's a really interesting question because when I think, think back to the PhD, the PhD was the start of a writing journey and I finished the PhD saying I was never going to write anything that size again and and (laughs) the complexities of doing it. And then within, within four years of finishing it, I'm publishing my first book, which has, which has nothing to do with my PhD. So I've I've embraced that challenge in a way that I never anticipated I would. Uh, I I think that's quite important. And I learned a lot of those things on the PhD journey and have continued to learn since. So there are definitely things that I would do now that I didn't do when I was doing the PhD because I didn't think I needed to. Um, So it's 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 an ongoing it's an ongoing journey. I think my mistake when I was doing the, the PhD, and I do think of it as being a mistake, is I didn't access enough support. I kind of, the, the, the diagnosis, and I don't particularly like that word, but the diagnosis was so recent and, and it, it, did two, it did two things for me. It made me go, oh my goodness, that's a shock. But it also made me go, hold on a minute, that makes so much sense. Now I know that. I know why I've been doing things differently all of my life. So it was kind of liberating as Mm. well as being a bit of a shock. Mm. But I was still quite resistant to getting support from a dyslexia support worker, for want of a better phrase. Mm. Um, And now I wouldn't write anything without one. In fact, I've worked with the same woman now for six years so she almost knows my work as well as I do which is which is brilliant um so I struggled a lot with structuring when I was writing the PhD I I have a tendency to write things backwards so I tend to start a paragraph with what should be the end of my paragraph and I know that I do that Um, and I don't unpick what I'm doing I'm assuming that those connections that I've made are obvious to everybody reading my work and and that's really not it's really not the case and I learned that more and more so I struggled a lot and it it did to do that and it slowed the process up and I became very frustrated with my inability to write in an academic in an academic way Um, and actually when I started working with a dyslexic support worker she enabled me to make the connections and make sense of what I was saying and then could re help me rephrase what I was saying or restructure what I was saying so it's absolutely all my work she just puts an she puts the emphasis in a different place Mm. Um, and so that's been really 
important to me. And since doing that, my writing has got faster and faster. So the PhD, I'll be honest, took me um, eight years, which is a really long time. Um, And then the book, the monograph that I just wrote took two. So the the, the speed... completely changed and that's because there's something that because working with uh, her name's Tanya working with Tanya has liberated liberated the way I write and speed it up uh, and sped it up considerably so so that's really key um and then I uh, so at the beginning of the process of writing the monograph I was like that's it this is the only thing I'm ever writing now I've got got my monograph I'm never going to do it again and then next minute I'm editing a journal and I've just edited, I've co-edited a book that has 47 chapters from around the world, which would, which is a dyslexic's nightmare, if I'm honest. Wow. Um, and I'm just formulating the uh, proposal for a, for a second monograph. And that's all because of the support that I've got through Tanya. So she has absolutely revolutionised the way that I work. And I'm, I now use more software and strategies that that speed up the process because the other thing that that I mean I love I've always loved reading I've I've always been a dyslexic that that embraces the written word and not everybody does but um what uh, so I would read and read and read and read and read but I can't remember what I've I've read five minutes later so I take in the PhD I took copious copious notes I underline everything I would underline things and then I would write notes in the margin and then I would type the notes up because then I'm doing each bit of information three times and that and that helps me remember it but Mm. what I'm learning now is that I can have software it's not even um neurodiverse software just my regular computer will read me word documents so I have the computer read everything back to me and I can hear mistakes that I'm making and cut and catch where I'm not being as logical as I as I might be if I if the computer is reading to me I also record my notes into I verbally me reading them because then that's that I'm still speeding up that process so I'm doing it twice that way and then the computer converts it into a word document so and I was very resistant to all of those techniques I was very resistant to speaking my thoughts to record them Mm. and uh um, the wonderful Tanya sneakily recorded me one day when she was asking me to unpick a theory that she hadn't quite understood when I when she was reading it for my writing she recorded it on her phone and then she played it back to me and she said you are so sounds like I'm being I'm not being very modest here but but she said you're so articulate when you speak you're losing that articulacy articulacy when you write so just speak it and so that's what I do um, amazing, amazing, amazing. So big shout out to Tanya. Absolutely. And and other Tanyas, all the Tanyas. And other Tanyas. What I was going to say is so often when when I'm interviewing people, there's there are amazing people in their lives that are that are part of their PhD team. Yeah. And I think it's amazing to have a PhD team. There's yeah. there's a kind of there's there's a kind of fallacy about this lone scholar. Yeah. Um, and actually, it's really cool to have a squad, right? It's, it's good <laughs> yeah. to have a team of people around you. Absolutely. And, and I think especially when they are really skilled, like having people who do exactly, you know, they do a thing really, yeah. really well 
Why yeah. would you not have them? Why no, would you I, not? No, I, I, I agree. And I, I didn't have a Tanya in my PhD process, and I should have done. I did have a brilliant supervisor. Um, the, the wonderful Helen Nicholson was uh, Royal Holloway was a, a brilliant supervisor, but she also understood that I was doing things differently. And so we had very frank and honest conversations about why I couldn't produce a logical argument so that she understood my neurodiversity at the time. And I think that's I think those honest conversations with supervisors are also really important. Your supervisor is is part of your team and is your friend and confident and academic advisor all rolled into one and so I think that's I think that that relationship with your supervisor is really important and it would have worked brilliantly to then involve um, a support worker in that mix as well I guess the other thing that I didn't have then that I do have now and that I've really come to value is is the fact that having a copy editor is not cheating (laughs) and is a really valuable thing and um, I hadn't really understood what the difference between copy editing and proofreading was. Um, nice. And I was nice. very fortunate that Central um, Central also recognises my neurodiversity and offers me Tanya's support for one thing, but also access to funds that um, I wouldn't otherwise be able to access. So they provided um, the money for me to employ a copy editor for the first for my book and that's another layer of the process that I think is really useful and it just hadn't occurred to me that there are professional people out there who will help you freight will absolutely catch it when you're not making sense or when you could say it more articulately and they don't do it for you but they make those moments obvious um, in a way that's really approachable and and lovely so if I I don't necessarily for articles and book chapters, but when I'm writing something that's that's as substantial as a PhD, and when you're holding that thread of argument and conversation for so many words and so many chapters, I would absolutely um, use funds and the support that being neurodiverse gives you financially to employ a copy editor to help you go through that process in the last stage. Amazing, and you know, and, and when you do come to to publishing, although you know now obviously budgets are. Yeah, push so you don't always get a copy editor but that, that would be that would have been the standard practice that you get someone to come in that you know that they kind yeah. of that, that, that you have an editor you work with an editor that's what you yeah. do that's the writing process so yeah. again I think because there's such shame there is such shame around and um and that I mean you know that's why we're talking now that's what it's all about in terms of yeah. kind of going this is this there's there's a process in here and and there's nothing to be ashamed about in this actually there's and say there's joy, there's beauty, there's amazing working relationships to be developed. Yeah. Um, I, I love it. And I also want to just honour and note, first of all, that eight, eight years to do a part-time PhD when you're working full-time is not a long time, just <laughs> putting that out there. But but also to acknowledge that the way in which having those things in place makes the process much smoother, yeah. quicker, more pleasurable definitely for you and that you can you can be your articulate self in writing because yeah. of those things in place yeah I think I, I think it. you're right I think the sh- I think I think the shame surrounding neurodiversity is real um it's hard in an academic environment if it uh, to to out yourself almost for want of a better expression yeah, yeah. um it 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 is tough, and I guess I guess that's why I was more resistant to having help during the big, especially the beginning of the PhD journey, because I'd survived my A levels, my 
first degree, my MA, without being diagnosed and without having that support. And so I was, I was a little bit of, oh, I don't need that. But it definitely would have made the journey smoother and more enjoyable had I embraced that. Um, and I guess, I guess now uh, it, it's like now I call it all the time. If I'm in a room, and, and, and trust me, I often have. If I'm in a room where somebody's neurodiversity is 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 um, not being supported or, or catered for, that's not quite the right wording. But then I'll absolutely call it. So in meetings, if I receive meetings in a work capacity that are in the that are in a font a serif a serif font um, or a stupid sized font I'll absolutely call it in the meeting and go this isn't appropriate for neurodiverse people and so it's almost become part of my mission as an academic to not let it slide anymore um, and I make it a mission to whenever I'm teaching uh, um, and actually whoever wherever I'm teaching is that very early on in a course or a unit I will make some reference to the fact that I'm neurodiverse because I think that allows more people to destigmatize mm-hmm. and for people to feel comfortable going no I do need support and I'm not going to hide this and that's not it's not always easy so I do kind of think it's part of my role to, to do that even with publishers when publishers send you manuscripts they're always in Times New Roman and I've just I've just say no I can't do it in that you need to change it Got Love struggling, I guess. you so much you're, you're just you're such you're always looking to support others on their journey that that is your orientation and I just it, it is amazing and that you you give your your passion and energy to that which I just love I I I I fully accept that in many many ways I'm very privileged um and I therefore have some limited ability to use that privilege to open the cracks to or not to open the cracks but to <laughs> to prize cracks open as widely uh-huh. as possible and that's I think that I think that's really I think that's really important I'm just starting a new I'm not sure this is relevant to this conversation but my new research thing is I've always looked at spatial social and spatial justice and I'm now broadening that out in research terms to be cognitive justice yeah. and that's it's become really important to me that that I don't think you can have social justice which is what 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 applied theatre my version of applied theatre is about I don't think you can genuinely be striving for social justice unless you also strive for spatial and cognitive justice because everybody works differently and that needs to be acknowledged in all sorts of ways and levels I love that so much I want to have a discussion with you about Augusta Boel Oh, oh, yeah. yeah. Maybe um, this isn't the time for that. This is not the time. So we need to stop now and have a conversation about that in a minute. But, but, but we do need to stop now anyway. Um, and but before we do, I'm going to ask the impossible question that I ask everybody mm. in terms of um, do you have out of all of that a top tip or some top tips um, for for people to take away? There are so many. It's it's really hard to reduce it to one or even a few. But but my first one is embrace it. If you have mm. a neurodiversity, embrace it. Work out really confidently what that makes you better at than the non neurodiverse people. Where, where where does that give you different strengths, and where are the challenges, and how do you get support to to navigate those challenges? And they'll be different for everybody. I, I also think the thing that we haven't talked about 
we've talked about the writing and not necessarily the viva. Um, I think I think not enough people realise that if they have a neurodiverse con- condition, again, not the right word, but a neurodiversity, then they're absolutely entitled to uh, uh, adjustments being made in the viva. Yes, and, yes, those, yes. and those adjustments are really varied and some institutions embrace them and offer them automatically inclusively to everybody some are really resistant to it so for me being able to remember what (laughs) being able to remember what I said in chapter one of my PhD was impossible I know that I know the broad concepts but I couldn't hold all of those concepts in my head at once and Mm. um, it became more like a memory the the thought of the viva became like a memory test and that's Mm. not the point of a viva so if you know that that's one of the things that you struggle with you're absolutely entitled to ask to have the questions 24 hours in advance and there was a huge stigma for me about doing that because people said that doesn't make it a proper viva that means that you're cheating it's not cheating it's that you're mm. you're being allowed to have a level playing field with people who do who aren't neurodiverse and uh, that was a real key moment for me actually when I when I insisted that I, that that was followed through um that was really my moment of like we have to change the way the universities run we have to change the way PhDs run to make it a more level playing field so yeah the, the shame and the stigma lose it Focus on the advantages that it gives you and find the best solutions to get to the end point you want to get to with the support you need in place to do that. Hooray. And yes, all of that. (laughs) Um, Amazing. Thank you so, so much for your time, for your your work um, (laughs) and for being um, an inspirational person. Thank you so much. And thank you all for listening. 